invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. We continue in our series in the Psalms. This is a psalm of David, we're told. It's also a psalm of God. So let's hear it from the lips of David, from the lips of our Lord. We begin in verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's end the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing, the preaching, the loving of his word. Almighty God, we praise you. There's the Lord who speaks. Speak to us now. Show us who you are, who we are in light of you. Give us your son in whom your glory dwells. Amen. This seems, in one sense, like a boring psalm if you're looking for yourself. Do you see yourself here? Eighteen times we have the covenant name Yahweh, the Lord. Eighteen times in 11 verses. You can do the math. That's more than once per verse. Eighteen times God, the Lord, is mentioned. This is a God-thick Psalm. It's all about him. It's not about us. And for a lot of us, that means it's easily skippable. That means it's easily missable. That means our interest might be a bit cool. But God imposes himself. No matter your interest tonight in Psalm 29, God is going to insist in imposing three things about himself on us this evening. He's going to impose his worship. That's the first couple of verses. He's going to impose his revelation. He's going to reveal himself, his voice, you might say, even in verses 3 to 9. And then he's going to reveal his people. He's going to call us to worship. He's going to call us to his voice. He's going to call us together. As a people, if you want a different way of looking at it. But first we come to these first couple of verses. 
In one sense, it's uh, God through David giving order to worship. God through David telling us how we are to worship him. Notice the first, the first thing that we learn here. David says, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. This is a very complicated, challenging, controversial group. These heavenly beings, who are they? What are they? They are literally sons of God. The footnote in the ESV tells you there might also be sons of might. Who are the sons of God? Who are these heavenly beings? Who are the sons of might? Well, this phrase occurs, the exact same phrase occurs in Psalm 89, verse 6. And it speaks very clearly there about the heavenly beings who are not God. It speaks about, in Psalm 89, verse 5 and verse 7, these heavenly beings who are in the council chambers of God, who are up in heaven, and they're, if, if you will, the cabinet of God. They're the kind of uh, officials of God's government. They're the ones who surround God's throne. And in Psalm 29, these heavenly beings, these sons of God, they, they do three things, that they give three things to God. They give him glory. They give him strength. They give him beautiful holiness. So who are these heavenly beings? Very simple. They're angels. They're angels. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord, Son of God. The angels. Does this mean, therefore, that the psalm is telling us to that the angels are giving more glory to God. He didn't have the glory and they need to give him a little more glory. No, you can't give more glory to God. You can't add anything to God's glory. But the picture of worship we have here, we are immediately thrown into heaven. We are immediately thrown into the angels. We are immediately pushed to realize that they give God glory. But the funny thing is here, actually, that who's, who's writing this? And who's he writing it to? It's David who's writing this, right? David is writing this. And who's he talking to? He's not, he's not talking to us. He's talking to the angels. And if you look at the structure, I'm so sorry to start so, so close with grammar here at the very beginning of the sermon. Don't worry, there's not too much more to this. But a very simple grammar point. He says, he gives a command, ascribe to the Lord. That means speak of the Lord in this way. He is commanding, you see the point here, he is commanding angels. David opens up this psalm about God by giving an order to angels. Let me ask you this question. When in your life have you given orders to angels? Is that kind of a routine thing that you do? Do you go around ordering Gabriel to do X, Y, and Z for you? I don't think so. It may not appeal to you to talk to the angels, but do you know that anytime you sing the doxology, that's what you're doing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. We can get that. Their animals should praise God. But then the doxology moves on. 
Praise him above ye heavenly host. That's an order. You were giving a command to the angels. You were talking to angels whenever you sing the doxology. And, and you ought to sing the doxology. It's a very good thing to sing. It's not a bad thing to sing. It's perhaps a little bit of a taste of what the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament, where he says, don't you know that you are to judge angels? And don't you realize that as a human being, you are superior to the angels? That's part of the point of Hebrews chapter 1. Christ did not come to the angels. He came to humans. You are superior to the angels. Why are you better than the angels? Well, think about it. The angels are simply spiritual beings. You're better than the animals. You know that because the animals are just material beings. They're just matter. It's biology. Angels are spirit. Animals are matter. What are you? You are both. What is a human being? The image of God. Angels are not the image of God. They're not made in the likeness of God. You are. And so David begins here by giving a command to the angels. So what's the application for you? The application is not go start commanding the archangel Michael to do things for you. That's not the application. The application is actually this. If you were ordering angels to praise, if it's okay for David to order the angels to, with gusto, give glory to God, the searchlight needs to swivel around back to you. If David can order the angels to praise, are we ourselves gripped with the urgency and the necessity and the delight of praising God? Are you aware of the high calling you have as a human to be made higher than the angels? That you will end up on a better place than the angelic host. And if they're praising God and you're not, that ain't going to end well. If they're praising God and ascribing the Lord glory and strength, and that's what they love to do and we're not, there's a serious problem. This last week... Um, uh, a Scottish pastor, whom I'd uh, be surprised if you all heard of him, died. He went to be in glory. His name was Eric, Eric Alexander. A great Scottish pastor, a great preacher. There was a quote that he had that I thought was relevant. Honoring him, I'll give you the quote. It's relevant to this point. He says this, in heaven... In heaven, every occupant except Jesus is engaged in worshiping Jesus. Every occupant in heaven is engaged in having Christ at the center of the whole of their life. And then he says this, the one thing the godless cannot understand is the Christian in worship. The one thing the godless cannot understand is the Christian in worship. This is the problem of the opening question of Psalm 29 do you want to worship God really or not? You have this high calling. You will judge angels. You will be higher than them. But do you actually want to be? Actually want to be worshiping God with the kind of gusto that David does here. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. But of course, second, we don't just see 
God imposing worship upon us. Secondly, we see in really the, the bulk of the psalm, it's pretty obvious as you read through it, is the uh, seven times we hear about the voice of the Lord. The call Yahweh in the Hebrew, the voice of the Lord. The Lord's voice is doing all sorts of things. But in verse 3, it begins in the Mediterranean Sea with a storm. David shifts from the glory of God in worship to the glory of God in the storm. The glory of God over the waters. David begins to give us a camera shot, the video and audio feed from a great hurricane, a great tornado, a great storm, a thunder and lightning. There's a massive thunderstorm moving off the Mediterranean coast. It works its way eastward. It works its way north of Israel. We we read here, verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. These cedars grew to about 80 feet high. They're huge trees. And so this is a huge God. He shattered them like nothing, like matchsticks. And even the mountains, verse verse 6, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. That means the mountains are shaking. The fault lines are breaking before the Lord. The storm moves on, verse 8, it moves on into the wilderness areas, the desert places, not just north in Lebanon, but south in Kadesh. And then verse 9, this vivid picture, the voice of the deer, of the Lord makes the deer give birth, the little doe, the timid doe. This is not uh, a birth at the normal time. The sense of the Hebrew is it makes the deer give premature birth, early birth. And it strips the forest bare. And in God's temple, all cry glory. Here's a clip of God. Here's a YouTube video of God at work. The storm. Thunder and lightning, just like last week's storm, just like Thursday night. Thunder and lightning. God's voice thunders. Why is this in the middle? Why is this the main thing that David wants you to know about? It's the bulk of the psalm. Why is this a storm? Why is this? Yahweh's voice. What does David want us to see? He wants you and me to be impressed with the glory of God. He realizes that the big problem in life is that we don't worship God. Why do we not worship God? Why do we go in for God substitutes? Why this week are you tempted to idolatry? It's because we don't think God's strong enough. We don't think he's good enough. We don't think he's majestic enough. He doesn't matter enough to us. But when we do think about God, where do we think God exists? I mean, if you ask the average person, if you ask your neighbors, where do you find God most frequently in your life? I'll tell you what they say, at least the ones that I ask. Maybe I have different neighbors. They will tell me that God is in the nice, placid, New England winter picture they have on their January calendar at home. Nice, white, calm. Or they'll tell me that God is in the the 6 a.m. duck blind when they're out hunting and they can just be at peace and they can just feel God's presence in that beautiful, sweet 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 4 a.m. 
hunting season. Or God's in the beauty of the lake and the stillness. Just looking out over there. How glorious God is. God is in the beauty. God's in the calm. God's in the sweet. God's in the Norman Rockwell painting. But Psalm 29 tells us that actually, if you want to see God, if you want to see God's glory at work, you should turn on the Weather Channel and watch Jim Cantori when he is on Miami Beach and the hurricane's coming. You might do better. We might do better to see God's glory when the tornado's coming, when the blizzard's there, not when the nice, calm, fluffy snow's there, but when it's beating down and there's ice and you're careening off the road. Or last week, when I'm huddled with the dog in the uh, best part of the house I can and the tornado siren's going off. We say we agree with that. I mean, that's what we sing, right? We, we, we sing these words. We sing about God's glory in the storm, but we don't want God's glory in the storm. We sing, right? Maybe you remember this. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Glory in the power of the storm. And what's the climax? It's verse 9. The climax after the storm goes all the way through. After the storm rampages across creation. The climax is this. In his temple all cry glory. I mean, that tells you what, what, what David's pushing toward. That, tell you, that tells you what the point of the psalm is. It's for you to cry glory to God and not glory to me. Not glory to yourself. It's for you to be slack-jawed when the storm comes through. It's for you to say, I can't do anything with this. I can't control it. It's funny, when it comes to weather, that's one of the last places on earth that we still cannot do well with. We cannot control as we, we can control many things. As modern humans, we've been able to control the temperature. Isn't it nice to have heating? Yes, it is very nice to have heating. It's nice in the summer to have AC. But we cannot control the weather. We can barely forecast it. And you know how the forecast goes here in Atlanta. You know what it's like. It's 7 degrees and it's 30 degrees and all, all in one day. So the point, friends, is that this cry of glory, as Derek Kidner writes, this cry of glory is a response of humility, of joy, and of understanding. Humility, joy, and understanding, which reveals that the storm is not meaningless. The storm is not a hostile God, but the voice of the Lord in all his works. You see, when you see God's storm pummeling the world, our first response ought to be glory, glory. What was true of worship in the earthly temple is still what God asks of us as his living temple. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So when you look at your own self, when you look at the way in which God's worked in you, the storm that he's brought you through, what are you to cry? 
glory, glory with humility, with joy, and with understanding. That he's not just playing random games with your life and your soul, but he wants you to look at everything that's gone through your, your life, everything that's gone through, that's happened in your life, and end up crying, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. Finally, briefly, the last couplet, the last couple of verses, we get a double shot of God here. We get a double shot of God. First is the king who reigns. Second is the God who sustains. The king who reigns, the God who sustains. First, the shot of God is the king who reigns. Verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. There are two things here in this verse that, that are vital. First, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This is that word that's only really used of Noah's flood, the great flood, the mighty flood, the scary flood. One of the things that people feared back in the day, and if you're up in New England, I suppose you still might fear it, is the sea. If you're on Miami Beach and the hurricane's coming, you're going to fear it. It's the ocean. They feared the ocean back in the day, and if you're near it today, you fear it as well at times. But the picture we have here is that God is enthroned over the flood. And the second line tells us of verse 10, it's a forever king. He's a forever enthroned. He ain't going to stop. There's not going to be a point where the, the, the levy of God breaks and suddenly he's kind of wobbly on the throne. No, he is king forever. And this really is a shot at all of the pagan theology that Israel was dealing with, and all the theology that you're dealing with, all, all the temptations, the false gods that you deal with. You know, back in their day, I mean, I'll just tell you about it. Back in their day, you have, you have things like the Gilgamesh epic. You can read it if you want to sometime. I'll, I'll save you the reading. I'll just tell you about it. The gods of Sumer and Babylon, they let loose a flood. And what is their response? They go berserk. They don't know what to do. They made a big oopsie. They are scared out of their minds. They cower like dogs when they realize that the flood is just everywhere. Ishtar, the mighty uh, goddess, cries out like a woman in travail, a pregnant woman. The gods bring the flood, and then they're scared, spitless at what they unleashed. But in the Bible, what do we have here? The picture of God in the Bible is not a divine nervous breakdown. The picture of God in the Bible when encountering chaos, when encountering dysfunction, when encountering pressure is not stress breakdowns. Yahweh, the Lord, the Hebrews emphatic, God, the Lord is enthroned over the flood. He is in control. He was in control in Noah's day in Genesis 6. He's in control today in your flood waters. And that includes the times when the voice of the Lord is scary, stormy, breaking the cedars like we just saw in the main body of the song. When it seems like chaos is in the highest, God is higher still. And that's the lesson you need, isn't it? Even in that, even in 
the storms that you face this week, the Lord reigns. And yet, that's still not as comforting as the psalm gets, because here's the deal. If God reigns, we might still have to go through all sorts of problems. And I don't want to go through problems this week. That's why we come to verse 11. And this is the last thing, the last beautiful picture we have here. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. It's beautiful, isn't it? All the fireworks. I mean, this is a firework psalm. This is a, a, a mighty, strong, intense psalm. It's beautiful how it ends, though. How does it end? Earthly peace. 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 It's like a rainbow, you know, after the storm. It's like a rainbow over the psalm. David began in heaven with the angels, cosmic worship, and he ends. My people, guys and gals, I'm going to give you peace this week. I'm going to give you peace this week. Do you see the emphasis? God is king, but he's not just king. He gets down off his throne and he gives fresh juice, what we might call peace, fresh peace to his people this week. That as he reigns as king, he comes down off the throne into our lives. I mean, you think about it, that the ultimate appearing of the Lord is not actually in a thunderstorm. The ultimate appearance of the glory of God is actually not in Psalm 29. The ultimate appearance of the glory of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. The God of glory became a human being. And what does John say? John 1.14, his prologue, we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son, full of praise and truth. He came in glory. He lived a life of glory. He moved around and there was glory. He did everything necessary for the salvation of his people. And he will come once more on the clouds of heaven with power and great great glory to bless his people with peace, to bless you with strength, to give you total prosperity. David McCullough, the historian, tells about Harry Truman back in the 30s when, when Truman was running for a primary election, a Senate seat in Missouri. And uh, it was the 30s, and it was Missouri, so it was dusty. They needed rain. And it was a summer day near a town called Mexico, Missouri, which is a fascinating name for a town. But, but Truman sees a farmer in a field ha- having, having trouble. He's trying to bind up the grain. He can't get it. And so Truman stopped the car. He talked to the guy. He takes off his coat and uh, he, he helped the guy get his grain. What's the point? The point is that Truman, this senator, this guy who's running for political office, high and mighty, he got down and dirty. He got down and dirty in the dilemmas of his fellow citizens. That's God. That's God in Christ. God in Christ comes down in your dusty, dry, Great Depression existence. And he gives life. He gives glory. And when it feels like the flood's there and it feels like the storm's just raging, he is Lord over the storm. 
We see that, don't we? In Mark 4. Remember the setting? Christ Jesus is sleeping on the job. He's asleep in the boat. And the fishermen, even the fishermen, even the guys who are the professionals, even the people who know what storms are like, they are freaking out. They're scared. Even his disciples, the best of them are scared. And what does Christ do? He wakes up. He rebukes the wind. He stifles the sea. Here in Psalm 29, the Lord brings the storm. In Mark 4, the Lord calms the storm. But either way, whether God calms your storm this week or he lets it rage, he is Lord of the storm. And as long as Christ is in the boat, nothing too bad can happen anyway. As long as it's in the boat of your life, nothing too bad can happen because he blesses his people with peace. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who speaks. You are the Lord we are called to worship. We come tonight to give you glory. And yet we need, we plead, we ask that as we come to your table, you would Come down to us once more. You would feed your people. You would strengthen us. You would carry us in your arms one more week, one more hour, one more day. We come as your servants, delighting that you are our God. Bless your people with peace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.